So the title of this teaching is Apostolic Authority, Submission, and Love. There's a, a heavy <laughs> teaching. <laughs> so it's like, fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> so at our last retreat, we looked in depth about how Paul related to the other apostles of the church in Jerusalem, the 12 who were called by Jesus himself. Today we're going to zoom out further, and we are considering how the apostolic gift serves the unity of the church worldwide throughout the ages. But before we go there, I want us to consider an even more fundamental question. Ready? Why does unity in the church matter to God at all? Because if it doesn't matter to God, why bother, right? Why is our love for one another important to the Trinity? Why does God care how we relate to one another as long as we love him? Right? So this is a question which lies at the very heart of our calling as a community. And it's a question which draws us into the contemplation of the Trinity. And I believe it's a question we should be asking the Lord frequently in prayer, expecting God to give us more and more understanding. So I want to take a moment right now to practice this calling. I want to take a, a minute or two of silence, and I want you to ask a person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you get to choose why unity is important to that person. All right? You can jot down some notes. We will have a chance to talk about this later. Does anybody have any new thoughts? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. I would love to hear them. Uh, we'll have time in small groups. But I want to take um, one truth about the unity of the Godhead as our springboard. And that's it, that unity is a defining characteristic of the Trinity, right? And the Godhead, three distinct divine persons are perfectly united in love. And in this love, there is joy beyond all we can imagine. God's joy is always a shared joy. The Father does not have joy apart from the Son or the Holy Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. There is no joy which is a private joy of one person within the Trinity. The Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son rejoice together and they grieve together. And this is the crazy mind-boggling promise of salvation is that we are invited into this joy at the Trinity. Of course, with the present limits of our mortality, we cannot fully comprehend the unity of the Trinity. But that doesn't mean this mystery is entirely closed. We don't say, oh, that's a mystery. I'm not going there. We don't do that because Jesus spoke extensively about it. He talked a lot about his Father, right? He said, this is what my Father is like. He said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will call to mind all things that I've said. When the Holy Spirit comes, you will have power from on high. When the Holy Spirit comes, you'll be able to do the things that I did. So, so the mystery of the Holy Spirit, I mean, the Trinity is not entirely closed to us. Jesus lays down his life because it is the Father's will. Jesus says that very clearly in John 10. The Father, in turn, gives the Son all authority to judge. 
Jesus does not remain on earth to reign immediately. Rather, he entrusts his church to the care of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in turn, never glorifies himself, always points to Jesus. This is why the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation 19. The three persons of the Trinity express their love through submission to one another, even when that submission is unfathomably costly, as in the crucifixion. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. And we often think, like, oh, our salvation is his joy. Yes, that's true. But also, it was his joy in the Father's will that was set before him to do the Father's will. Not only do the persons of the Trinity love one another in submission, God calls his people to partake in this love by submitting to one another in love. When love is perfect and mature, it will be expressed in mutual submission. And when submission is perfected in love, it leads us to the joy found in the Trinity. So let's listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We're going to hear what the will of the Lord is. This is good. Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What is the will of the Lord? First of all, it's filled with the Holy Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making, singing and making melody in your heart, that is the will of God. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father and submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. So what is the will of the Lord? Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord is the will, the fear of God. Okay, it may sound like everyone submitting to one another is a path to chaos rather than unity. Yes? <laughs> the unity of the church, as Christ has ordained it, flows directly from the unity of the Godhead. And is there chaos in the Godhead? No. 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 There is perfect order within the Trinity. No member of the Trinity is more important than another, but each has a unique role to play in the salvation of men and women. The Father does not do the Son's job, nor does the Son grasp at equality with the Father. Now, if Jesus lives within the order of the Trinity, then surely the body of which he is the head must also be joined to this order in the Trinity, right? So there's, there's no chaos in the body if the head is joined to the Trinity. Does this make sense? So Jesus has established order within his church. It is natural that the order which exists within the Trinity should be reflected or expressed in some way within the body of Christ. Now we have to understand the order of the church is not a hierarchy any more than the Trinity is a hierarchy. Every single member of the body is important. And Paul tells us explicitly that the hidden parts of the body are just as vital or even more so than the visible ones. Every member is unique, just as every member of the Trinity is unique. We do not lose our personhood any more than Jesus loses his personhood. And I love the promise in Revelation that every single one who overcomes is given a stone with a name known only to God. 
That is how important each person is, and how that that is the value that God places upon our individuality. But every person in the body of Christ is given certain gifts and functions to build up the entire body, just as organs in our physical bodies have roles to play. We manifest our unity when we serve one another with our gifts and trust other people to function in theirs. Okay. We manifest our unity when we serve one another with our gifts and trust others to function in theirs. This is mutual submission. Just as an eye submits to the service of the heart, and the heart is fueled by the lungs. All right, here is a concrete example of mutual submission among God's people. Immediately after God, after Paul calls us to submit to one another in the fear of God, he addresses husbands and wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So God has established the order of families. Families are both a reflection of the Father's heart and a school of maturity. Yes? Yes. <laughs> Every spiritual gift is like that. In the family order, wives are called to submit to their husband's leadership, but the leadership of a husband is one of service, like Christ's own leadership. And leadership does not mean that gifts don't get to be expressed. I'm here teaching and I'm a woman, right? So it doesn't mean that women don't express their gifts. But the beauty of unity in God is that submission is an act of love which allows us to receive the grace of protection of service. Women, would you not willingly submit to a husband who daily lays his life down for you, seeking to make you spotless and beautiful and wise and holy and happy, right? And men, are you not sobered by the standard set before you, that you love your wife as your own body, even laying down your lives that's a high standard. So everyone who leads in the body of Christ and everyone who follows is called to embrace the same attitude as Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Now, brothers and sisters, if we were as humble as Jesus, then unity would flow naturally and joyfully. But even as I say these words, my own mind, my own heart objects, we're not as humble as Jesus. That's crazy. We're not as humble as God. That should disturb us, right? 
we hurt one another. It's not always safe to submit. And I'm sure you're all thinking the same thing, right? We have to acknowledge that abuse of power is a reality in our world and even within our church. Abuse of power is a grievous sin because it injures the individuals that God loves. It also smears our image of God and it damages the body because we find ourselves unable to trust one another. So abuse will be harshly judged by Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus does not take abuse lightly. And if we come from a place where we have experienced abuse, we can take comfort of that, in that. Christ will judge, Christ will heal, Christ will comfort. As members of the body, we must be vigilant to stand against abuse. We must watch out for one another, speak up if we see harm being done. Even if it's done in ignorance, we watch out for one another. We console the hurting and heal the wounding. And, and frankly, we have to be careful with our own hearts. Not everyone is safe to trust, right? We trust people to the degree we find them trustworthy. But we cannot seal ourselves off from the church, refusing to trust anyone, for that will cause great injury to the body of Christ. Imagine how quickly a natural body would die if the heart says, I don't trust the liver, I'm not going there. <laughs> right? As hard as it is to fathom, Jesus has entrusted his authority to people who make up the church. That is an inestimable honor. He has invested his authority to people in the church. And there is no plan B, right? This is our this is our refrain. There is no plan B. Let me hear you say that. There is no plan B. He's sticking with the church. Jesus is absolutely committed. What? Praise God. He is committed to working through the church. If we withhold ourselves from others in the body of Christ out of fear, we cannot move in the authority which Christ desires to invest in us. And we don't receive the gifts which our brothers and sisters carry. We neither contribute to the perfecting of Christ's bride, or, nor do we receive the benefits of her maturing. So here's what Paul says about Christ's ordering of the church. This passage is from the fourth chapter of Ephesians, just before the exhortation to submission. And he himself, being Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'm gonna stop there and say that again. These gifts are given until, what, let's read till verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is a high bar, right? That is the power of these gifts. Jesus thinks, apparently, that these gifts are sufficient to bring us to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. So can you imagine what joy we're going to experience together and with the Trinity when we attain that unity? It's going to be joy beyond all we can imagine. Can you imagine that unity with God where we love God and in loving God, we love the people that he loves fully without fear? So when we are united in perfect love, we will find ourselves living in the love of the Trinity. This is why it's so important for us first to contemplate the unity of the Trinity. We need to set our minds on the unity of the Trinity because how will we desire what we don't think about, what we don't care about, what we don't love? But with this joy set before us, we can embrace the gifts given to one another, which Jesus says will bring us to unity. And we can make that choice knowing that these gifts will not always be wielded perfectly. We also understand that if they are wielded abusively or wickedly or without faith, we can remove ourselves from the situation, but we cannot remove ourselves from the body. Does this make sense? Yes. It is for the sake of our joy that Jesus has gifted some as apostles and some as prophets, others as evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Understand these gifts are not handed out as prizes for certain high-achieving Christians. <laughs> no. They are gifts to the entire body, and it is our benefit to receive them. The role to, one, the role to which one is called is not a measure of God's love or esteem. Rather, the gifts are an ordering of the church, which give us opportunities to serve and receive. So practically speaking, what does this order in the church look like? I'll offer a concrete example. So teaching is a gift which every member of the body of Christ needs in order to mature. Even those who have walked for many years with Jesus need to be nourished by the word of God, just as every cell in the body needs blood every day. Christ has gifted teachers to serve this need in the body. He has set apart men and women who are called to study and instruct others in the word. This means that each member of the body must be willing to receive from those who are called to be teachers. And those of us who serve in this gifting must offer our service to the body for the love of Christ with great humility and with gentleness while continuing to receive from other teachers. Because even teachers need teachers, yes? <laughs> But all, not all teaching is trustworthy or godly, you may say. How do we know which teaching can be trusted or which prophecies should be heeded? That is a great question. But guess what? God has a solution. Christ has ordained a solution. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, We'll get to the miracles after good teaching. <laughs> then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. 
So apostles hold the highest responsibility for maintaining order and unity in the church. They are the ones who safeguard the gospel, ensuring that it's passed along in truth, unchanged from one generation to the next. Those who walk in the authority of apostles, apostles set boundaries for teachers and prophets, evangelists, and even miracle workers. When I was younger, I thought of Jesus' 12 apostles primarily as power evangelists, and they were that. And, oh, I would love to see that gift in full functioning again. So they did. When they preached, thousands came to faith. Philip preached in Samaria. Hundreds came to faith. They laid their hands on people. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. The dead were raised. But the more I study the book of Acts and the more I look at Paul, and the more I read about the early church, the more I realize that another key role the apostles played in establishing the church was, um, was serving as Moses did by judging the people, by ruling on difficult matters. We looked at this duty at our last retreat when Paul and Barnabas came to Jerusalem to ask the 12 apostles um, who were still residing in Jerusalem at the time to rule on whether Gentile converts were required to be baptized, uh, to be circumcised, sorry. The authority of the 12, and eventually others whom those 12 recognized and set in apostles, set up as apostles, set them apart from evangelists. Several times in the book of Acts and in the writings of the early church fathers, Men who were recognized as apostles were asked to judge on matters which would impact the unity of the church. They were consulted on doctrinal matters. They also solved social justice disputes like how widows should be fed. And finally, it fell to the apostles to instruct congregations on how to deal with sinners in their midst. As Thomas pointed out in his teaching, Paul was careful to stay within the bounds of established apostolic authority. He submitted to the ruling of the apostles in Jerusalem concerning the Judaizers. The Judaizers came from Jerusalem to Antioch, so Paul went back to Jerusalem to ask for the ruling. But among the churches which Paul himself founded, he passionately confronted sin and doctrinal error. He corrected recalcitrant sinners and even insisted that some of them were removed from fellowship until they repented. Now, it is clear from Paul's pleading and his tears that he hated, he hated doing this. He hated um, bringing the hammer down. It was a cross for him to oppose false teachers, but he was willing to enter that fray in order to protect the unity of these, these fledgling churches. He understood that he had a sacred duty to pass on what he had received from the Lord. Because if you've never read early church fathers, there was all sorts of craziness going on in the early church. I mean, just as crazy as our day, and probably even more so. So faithful, trustworthy apostles are a gift from Jesus to the church. They bear the burden of protecting the flock from error and from the abuse of evil people. They are called because they are called to the highest form of service in the church. Like Christ, they must be willing to lay down their lives. So, do you know um, bishops? They wear those little red 
kneecaps on their heads. Cardinals. Um, card well, cardinals, bishops too. They have bishops them. Too. Bishops too. That's because they're called as apostles, and they have to understand they are willing to lay down their lives for the church. That's the symbolism of the red cap. So you may ask, how can apostles protect unity in the church if we can't even decide what an apostle is, right? <laughs> there is no agreement among the traditions about what an apostle is. So here, here is my, as I've prayed about this, here is my thought I would like to offer to you um, to consider. My belief is that Jesus continues to give gifts even if they are expressed differently in various traditions. I would answer that though we may use different language to describe this apostolic gift, it is exercised in every Christian tradition, protecting the gospel from one generation to the next and exercising discipline. Anywhere Jesus is proclaimed as Lord, he is actively giving gifts and drawing people towards unity, right? So though apostolic authority may take different forms in different denominations, every tradition has a way to determine which teaching is sound and which is not. This authority may reside with a bishop, with a council, with a, a synod, with the founder of a movement or a board of elders. But without this gift, individual believers will spin into error and division. Why? Well, Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He has always been attacking the unity of the church from the beginning on every front imaginable. Legalism, licentiousness, greed, envy, lust, interest in the occult, he doesn't care. He simply rejoices in picking off believers, and the ones who have not submitted to any apostolic authority are easy prey. As I said before, it may look like we Christians have wandered far away from the days of the glorious apostles. And like I said, I, I pray to God that we will see apostles <laughs> acting in the kind of authority that Peter and John and James and Paul carried. I, I do. We may point to our divisions and think that, that we have lost that gift. We may point to serious, seemingly irreconcilable differences of doctrine amongst those who hold apostolic authority, and we may be tempted to despair. It may seem like we are going farther from the goal of unity than we were in the beginning, but I don't believe this is true. I believe the gifts that Jesus gives the church are more powerful than we imagine, more hardy than we imagine, and that they have been in operation from the beginning, and they will continue to operate until we attain the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Because there is no plan B, right? <laughs> so when I look at the church today, I see the fruit of the apostolic gift. Consider this. The church is larger than she's ever been. I mean, significantly larger. She has spread across the globe and been received by countless, countless cultures and a multitude of languages. She's endured 2,000 years of cultural change, and yet our faith is remarkably similar to the ages and across the globe. Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, Messianic Jews, we all hold a common canon of scripture. Yes. I'm gonna stick with that. <laughs> we agree with the tenets of the Nicene Creed. We practice baptism and communion. We look with hope to the return of our Lord. 
the truth which unites us far outweighs our differences. Mm, that's good. And since the charismatic movement of the 20th century, our unity has grown even deeper. On a grassroots level, believers of, of many different traditions pray together frequently, like we're doing today. It doesn't seem a big deal. You know, 50 years ago, this would have been a big deal. <laughs> so if we look to Teze, or the Global Day of Prayer, or the Focolare movement, Judy's part of that, we see um, beautiful examples of ecumenical worldwide prayer. And on an official apostolic level, there are several movements working to repair the damage of our divisions. The Joint Declaration on Justification is a powerful statement of faith signed by the Vatican, the Lutheran Church, the Presbyterians, and the, and, and the Methodists agreeing on what saves us, on salvation. That's a big deal. All of these signs indicate that the apostolic gift is working powerfully within Christ's body. As I said, I would love to see the apostles preaching with power as they did in the days of Jesus. And I believe that we at Christ the Reconciler should pray earnestly for an outpouring upon apostles, the raising up of apostles. Because the stronger our apostles, the greater our unity will be. So we also need to pray for all of the gifts to be in function. We need to pray for ourselves to function in the gifts because we all reap the rewards of strong teachers, of wise counselors, of gracious hosts, of loving mothers and fathers, of worship leaders. The church is made stronger by exercising gifts in faith. Where the gifts are not received or exercised vigorously, the flock tends to stray looking for something to satisfy their souls. And Satan is on the prowl. As I said, in the days of the first apostles, the church was riddled with false prophets and with teachers. Even before television, there were evangelists who were out to make a prophet. There were others uh, claiming to be apostles who tried to Christianize certain pagan philosophies. And there were many pseudo-apostles who used the doctrine of grace as a license for sensuality. Is this not true, Danny? Are you here? Where's Danny? Danny Yes, Danny is a, a, he's a scholar of the early church. And yes, the early church was scary <laughs> in many ways. It really was. The church is in a similar scary place today. It can be difficult to know whom to trust because there are so many voices. And thankfully, Jesus warned us that our faith would be assaulted and tested by false teaching. So back to Matthew 24. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. 
So you'll note that this passage ends on a hopeful note. The gospel will be preached. The testimony of Jesus will be preserved until the whole world hears. And then the end will come. But before we see that day, we will see an increase in lawlessness. And we will see a rejection of authority. Lawlessness, this passage says, Jesus tells us, makes love grow cold. Therefore, lawlessness is opposed to unity. So what is the connection between lawlessness and love growing cold? Whenever we reject Jesus' instructions, we are not in submission to the head of the body. And if we are not in submission to the source of love, how will his love flow through us? Sin, by its very nature, creates division. Adultery, lying, theft, greed, violence, contempt, they injure our neighbor. An injury, in turn, leads to mistrust, which leads to division. This is why, as reconcilers, as people of God, we must be a people with the law written on our hearts. In order to enter the unity of the Trinity, we must cling to the order which Christ has established. Walking outside church authority is an act of lawlessness. It's a sign that our love has grown cold, and it will lead others into temptation. How many of you have friends who've left the church because they were disappointed or hurt? Everyone? We all do. How many of those people who have left the church are fervent and passionate still in their love for Jesus? Perhaps there are some. And I pray for those I know who have left the church because I believe the Holy Spirit can blow on the embers of their heart. But I'm convinced that it is impossible to love Jesus the way he wants to be loved unless we love his body. Remember, there is no plan B, right? Mature love always leads to submission to God and to one another. This is why we must strive to become like Christ, who is worthy of our trust. By this shall all men know that we are Christ's disciples, that we love one another. And the evidence of our love will be mutual submission, just as it is between the persons of the Trinity. So we need to pray that we're trustworthy servants of the gospel. We need to pray to mature in our use of spiritual gifts for the sake of the body. We need to receive gifts with gratitude from one another, even if that gift comes in the form of correction. For those of us who belong to Christ the Reconciler, this exhortation to pray is all the more important for we have been entrusted with a ministry of reconciliation. Now to fulfill this ministry, We've been given gifts of teaching, worship, counseling, hospitality. Our calling is a gift which carries power for healing in the body of Christ. Do you believe that? But we cannot carry this gift in a spirit of independence or lawlessness. Our apostolate must function in a position of submission to a greater apostolic authority. 
Okay, I just introduced the word. What do I mean by the apostolate of CTR? In Catholic speech, the word apostolate is used to describe a ministry or outreach which operates under the authority of the church but outside the walls of the parish. So each apostolate has a particular calling or charism. St. Vincent de Paul is an apostolate which serves the poor. The Salesian order is an apostolate which ministers to youth. Caroline is a Dominican and they're a preaching order. In the Protestant world, apostolates are sometimes called parachurch ministries. YWAM is an example of a Protestant apostolate. InterVarsity is another. Taze and Living Waters are examples of ecumenical apostolates. As the word suggests, each apostolate operates within the broader church under its own apostolic leadership. Usually this is the form of a, a, a board. The leaders of an apostolate should be men and women who exhibit the character and humility of Christ. They must live in submission to the order that Christ has established in the church, and they should act as servants to their ministry just as Christ serves the church. Leaders of apostolates should welcome the ministry of prophets, administrators, teachers, all of the gifts. And they should live within the apostolic boundaries of their own church traditions. So, speaking very practically now, at this time, the Owenses and the Cogdells bear the weight of apostolic leadership for the CTR community. This means that we are charged with protecting the unity of this community and its fidelity to Christ. My sense is that the Lord is doing a new thing at CTR, and we need to be very clear about this. I want you to know, actually, Philip and Caroline is in the back. Thomas, would you stand up for just a moment? Philip, just stand up for just Caroline, a moment. Back here. Yes. So speaking, speaking for the four of us, I want to I want you to know that we carry this charge very seriously. We are committed to following Christ to the best of our understanding. We are committed to loving one another and to submitting to one another. And we are committed to loving you, our community, and ministering and laying our lives down. Okay. So you can sit down now. I just wanted to... We are also committed, the four of us are committed to living within the boundaries of our own apostolic traditions, namely Hope Chapel and the Catholic Church. We're committed to praying for unity as Jesus prayed for it. And thus, um, in this unity, because this unity flows from the Trinity, we're committed to contemplating the Trinity. Living under authority sells healthy, holy boundaries for our actions. It informs our commitment, for example, to respect boundaries regarding communion. While we long for the day that all believers can share communion together, we do not run ahead of apostolic authority. We wait for the Lord to work unity through these channels which he's established in the church. So as leaders, I want to express our deep gratitude for all who share this ministry with us. Many of you have walked with us for years. Um, 
praying, giving, prophesying, counseling, cleaning the house. Mm. You're thankful. <clears throat> For some time, we've been praying about how to express our apostolate more clearly. The statement of personal devotion is one expression of our apostolate. We've also been working on a community commitment for those who feel called to invest in CTR as their primary place of life and ministry. It's done. We're still waiting on direction from God about how and when we implement this. But we believe that such a commitment brings strength and clarity to those who are feel, feel called to this community and it helps us serve the greater body because CTR does not exist to be a great community, right? CTR exists to serve the whole body. So that's the end of a, a weighty teaching. A lot, a lot of material. And there will be time for questions later, but I think that I want us to press into a time of response to the Lord in prayer. Can we do that together? So, so Jesus, I want to thank you for speaking to us about the days that we live in. I want to thank you for speaking to us and promising that you would return. I want to thank you for, for warning us so that our love will not grow cold. Holy Spirit, I want to ask you to raise up apostles who minister in power, who speak truth to your church. I want to pray for this community that you would bind us together in the love of the Trinity for your own joy and for our mutual strengthening.